0: All right, well, we're going to be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3 tonight. We're going to take a look at an interesting concept. Um, Last week, we uh, studied the qualifications of an elder, a bishop. um, And the idea in studying that was to see the qualifications of a pastor. And um, we looked at the term of what bishop means, and it's an overseer it 's the same thing that you would describe as somebody would oversee uh, an ecclesia, which is the Greek word for an assembly, so it, can, it applies to the church, it applies to the government, and then it went through the list of qualifications, and we looked at those qualifications and we understand, as we covered last week, this idea of, of the First Amendment of uh, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom to peacefully assemble for the redress of grievances to the government, and the purpose of the First Amendment is to protect us from our representatives. And so that's why we're given this pursuit of freedom. And if we lose those freedoms, we have the inability to call to account, as the scriptures declare, especially for, for bishops, to call to account those who would be in positions of authority and holding them to those qualifications of excellence and to pursue excellence. And we want men and women of character, both um, in the ministry and also in in civil government. And so these are qualifications that we look for. And I, I want this to echo in your mind And I'm gonna say it and I just want you to ruminate on it. Pursuit of excellence. Let me say it again. Pursuit of excellence. Repeat that with me. One, two, three. Pursuit of excellence. Kind of think on that. Because when we go through the qualifications of a deacon or a deaconess, we're going to see this idea of a pursuit of excellence. And and we're gonna we're gonna take a look at another aspect of our civil society in relation to the church itself. And I believe this is what Paul was doing in Ephesus, and this is what turned the world right side up, and he was educating Timothy on this pursuit of excellence. But before we begin, let's, let's begin with prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask you would lead us into all truth. Lord, we thank you that you're the supreme lawgiver. There's none above you. And Lord, when man tries to abrogate the law of God, and it's your revealed truth, it's natural law, it's what we're subject to, And Lord, we want to know what true freedom is. Lord, is is freedom the removal of constraints? And if that's not what it is, Lord, what is freedom? What is the law? What is the purpose of the law? And so, God, tonight as we take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we look at the qualifications of a deacon or a deaconess, I I pray, God, that you would minister to us, lead us into all truth. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be receptive, that we would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's pick up, uh, we're, we're at verse 8, uh, we just covered all the qualifications of a bishop or an overseer or a pastor, uh, if you need a Bible, does anyone need a Bible? Because we go, just raise your hand, Micah back there will get you one, it's a true Wednesday night crowd, alright, congratulations, maybe some of you do need one, you just don't want to raise your hand, I get that, it's alright, I'll read it for you, First Timothy chapter 3 starting with verse 8. Likewise, and when he when he uses when, when Paul uses the word likewise, he's saying similar to bishops. Likewise, deacons, and the word deacon is real simple. It it means servant. It it means uh, uh, diaconus, which just means a servant. It's it's one who waits tables. It's the same term as a waiter. It's one who kicks up dust. It's it's one who works. It's one who uh, does the bidding of a master. And so he says, likewise, deacons diaconus must be reverent. Not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Everyone say, be tested. tested. I said everyone, be tested. tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives, and and the context in the Greek means deaconess. Anyone serving with their husband, or this idea uh, where you see with Phoebe, she was a deaconess. Uh, Priscilla and uh, and Aquila Priscilla was um, a deaconess We we, uh, see with Dorcas She was a deaconess So it's the same process It says likewise Similar to the male deacons Likewise their wives must be reverent Not slanderers Temperate Faithful in all things Faithful in all things Let deacons be the husband of one wife Ruling their children in their own houses well for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in faith, which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, Timothy, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God and, and uh, uh, Ion, uh, Ionicus which means house of God. It, it's, it's the same term as, as a home. You're, how you act in somebody's home. And I want you to understand how you act in the home of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, and believed on in the world and received up in glory. Um, let 's just begin up at verse eight. Now uh, this idea of diaconus deacon, one who executes the commands of another uh, of a master, a servant, attendant, minister of a king, uh, another definition, a deacon, one who, by virtue of the office assigned to him by the church, cares for the poor, has charge of, and distrib- distributes the money collected for their use, a waiter, one who serves food and drink these are all similar definitions that you find in the greek, and there 's three knots that we see in this not um, double-tongued, not given to much wine, and, and not prone to, as it says, filthy lucre in the King James. But in this case, it says not greedy for money. And the idea of not double-tongued is not a gossip, uh, meaning you're, you're looking for someone who doesn't tell one person one thing and tells another person another thing. Um, that's one of the hardest things in ministry to deal with. You, you, you hear the story, and then you talk to the person that they represent and you hear from that person a different story. And then you go back to this person and it's a different story, but when you go back to that person, it's a different story and you're trying to find the truth in between. And that's double-tongued. It's somebody who's playing both sides for their benefit. And, and that is, that is a, a troubling aspect. And you, you look for folks who don't do that. You want to find folks that what they say they mean and they don't have to keep a record of what they said. Uh, if, if you tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. And in this case, uh, this is what what Paul's speaking of. He says, not given to much wine. Now, if you want to drink in the body of Christ, don't be a shepherd, don't be a bishop, but you can be a deacon. Not given to much wine. The idea for a bishop is not given to wine. Um... You know, I, I would like to say that I've never touched alcohol. Um, I, I, when I was in Scotland, I drank, and then I enjoyed scotch. And during the election, people would give me that, and I would drink that periodically. And it just came to a place where I realized, and I told this to uh, Ken Graves, I just said, I'm, I'm finished. I, I don't want to stumble anyone. I know that there's, um, uh, all things are permissible. Not all things are profitable. Some of you are going to leave the church because you heard that, and uh, that's fine. Uh, just be careful in your judgment. That's going to come back at you. Um, and, and the idea is, the Lord just showed me, in, in my situation, not so much in the realm of a deacon, but in my situation, there's just not room for it. Um, and, and so that was very clear to me, and it was something that the Lord had put on my heart, and I saw that. But not given to much wine, and in both cases, whether it's bishop or deacon, the idea is, uh, you know, you're, you're not drunk with wine or drunk with money. And in neither case, and the scripture says in Ephesians, be not drunk of wine, but of the Holy Spirit. And so drunkenness is is just not a, a calling for a, for a bishop or a deacon. It's, it's just not part of the whole process. But even uh, with Timothy, as Paul wrote this, he says, Timothy, take some wine for your stomach ailment. And the word wine means fermented drink. Take some for your stomach ailment. I've heard pastors, especially Ken Graves, speak on the fact that, uh, you know, Timothy was, was so committed to the ministry that he wouldn't even take wine for stomach ailment, even though it was ministerially uh, Promoted by by his elder, the apostle Paul, um, I I think that's speculation. But uh, Paul said to Timothy, "Take wine for your stomach ailment." Um, and then and then it says, "Not given." Uh, this is the third not. It says, "Not given or not greedy for money," and that's the idea of filthy lucre in the King James. It just means no love of money. Uh, and you, you run where the money is as opposed to waiting and, and seeking what God has. And and money drives you, and, and the pursuit of money drives you. And this idea of love of money is the term agape, that you give yourself to it, that at all expense you give yourself to it. And it, and it brings you to a place of, as, as the Scripture says, these compromises in the knots and the double tongue and all those areas. And, and so all these knots tie together. That makes little funny thing there. I just thought I'd throw that out. I didn't expect to, but I I realized that it was just brilliant what came out of my mouth. And that's pride, and I'm in trouble. Where were we? Uh, uh, Verse 9, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. Um, The idea of a pure conscience, and I I like what Spurgeon said, the soul as distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and shun the latter, commending one and condemning the other. So a good conscience is somebody who pursues excellence in the pursuit of what is good. Let me repeat that. A good conscience is someone who pursues excellence in the pursuit of good. Everyone say pursue excellence. So the idea of a good conscience is somebody who is pursuing excellence. And in pursuing excellence, to pursue excellence, to achieve excellence, you have to obtain the good. You have to pursue the good to obtain the excellence. I'll explain that momentarily. Verse 10, it says... um, but let these also first be tested and let them serve as deacons being found blameless. The idea of being tested um, is like a refiner's fire. You don't know what's in a Christian. And, and again, this, the same term, and it's, it's been abused in our culture. But it, it's fitting if, if you think of it. A, a Christian is like a tea bag. You don't know what's in them until you put them in hot water. And it's this idea of being tested. And, and the testing comes under trial and how you stand under that trial. And and I was sharing with someone today, I've been going through a pretty heavy trial myself, and going through this, I I had shared with somebody that although the trial itself is overwhelming, much like like labor, the delivery of it is always so much deeper in this pursuit of excellence and knowing the Lord and trusting Him in a greater capacity. And this is what you're looking for in someone who's going to oversee God's people, is you want to see someone who's been tested. Because when the temptation comes, if they haven't been tested, they're going to fold to that temptation. And you want to see somebody that you know, uh, the true test of a servant or a deacon is how you act when you're being treated like one. Let me say it again. L- listen to that. Especially if you're called to serve in the body of Christ. The true test of a servant is how you act when you're being treated like one. And, and some of the people who are closest to the ministry, and this is why I find myself to be a good tipper, some of the people who understand ministry better than anyone else are, are food servers, and some of the cheapest people are the people on Sunday mornings after church when they go out to eat. And and you you look past a server, and they're, they're in the way of what you want. And if they don't give you what you want, you let them know. And the test of the servant is how they respond to you with your attitude. Is their heart to serve you? And in some cases, they're driven by the tip that they possibly will or won't receive. Or they're driven by their boss who is demanding it. Or they're driven by excellence and they really want to do well. And they want to represent the, the company well and their boss well. But more importantly, they want to represent God well. And, and that's the true test of a servant is how you act when you're being treated like one. And so the scripture here says, let them be tested. I, I'm, I'm looking for men and women that that they don't, they don't go sideways when something doesn't go their way. They don't have their own agenda. Uh, if, 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 you know, the... the the, the entirety of the body of Christ belongs to the Lord. He's the boss. There's an order of authority, and, and if you're asked to do something, and then it shifts midstream, and you're you know, counting it and doing all the checks and balances and seeing where you fit, and if it's all legitimate and the balance works out in your favor or doesn't, that's not what God's saying here. So let him be tested. And one of the great tests to me, and I remember Don McClure sharing this, is when Chuck had said to him, I want you to buy a house, and, and uh, I'm going to increase your salary. And Don was moved by that and he's a Scotsman and he saves and he went out and he put the down payment with all of his savings into the house and and realizing now he can afford the mortgage and and Chuck had told him what the raise was going to be and he went out and Chuck never gave him the raise. Never gave him the raise. So Don's got a down payment on a house that he can't live in so he has to rent it. He's still living in his rented place but he's renting the house he can't afford but it's at least covering the rent although he's paying a little stipend which actually reduces his income. And this is the thing that blew me away about Don. He never, never told Chuck about it. Never. His father-in-law was livid. He was on the board. He says, I need to go and tell Chuck. This is unacceptable. Don said, no. I serve the man. If God wants to tell him, he will. And what Don learned from that entire experience is how to be tested. And he saw it as David saw with Saul that this man is being used in my life to refine me. And this was a spectacular picture of somebody who had been tested. When you look at Don, this is a man who's planted more churches, more Calvary chapels than any other pastor. They call him the five-star. And, and he's not in any of the harvest books. Nobody knows of him. But yet, anyone in Europe who's planted a church survived the mission field because of the way Don trained him. And not only trained him the way that he learned. And it, it's, a, it's a pretty tough experience, but the reality is I'm, I'm glad I trained under him. And this is what I wish for, for those who were... You know, the Bible says that I'm to equip saints into ministry. And that's what I look for. And so this idea of first being tested and then likewise let them serve as deacons, being found blameless, once you start to see that, that they don't re- react, they respond, when you start to see them in tough situations where they're on their knees, they're not running for the very first thing that comes, they're not robbing Peter to pay Paul, they're, they're waiting on the Lord, they're, they're, they're temperate, they're patient, then you start to see, let's elevate and move that person forward. You can have giftings, but you, you, you have no character. And the two have to come together. And this is that testing aspect that he speaks of. Verse 11, it says, Likewise, let their wives be reverent. Let their wives be reverent. Um, the idea of reverence is, is showing proper respect towards God and man. This idea of recognizing authority and honoring it. And, and operating in that context. Not slanders. And, and the idea of slander just... The word in the Greek is awful. It's diabolos. Don't be a devil. <laughs> okay. Uh, the idea is prone to slander or accuse falsely. And who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan. Uh, someone who speaks truth the first time. There's no intent to deceive. And there's a tenderness. This idea of slandering that if it doesn't go your way, you're going to speak ill of that person or you're going to speak kindly of that person. And this is what Paul's saying. Look for the wives in that regard that are, are temperate and they're not slanderers. Um, they, they don't relegate the human tongue, um, just in person, meaning, you know, they don't just watch their tongue in person, but also in cyberspace, on social media. I look for that. You know, you're, you're venomous on social media, although I'm seldom have ever on it, but that, you know, it's out there. And, and though you've typed it, you're, you're still responsible for what you said, um, and that's, you know, this idea of cyber slander and this idea of, of, of just doing these things in such an awful way. Um, Clark says, uh, in regards to slanders, this may be properly enough translated, slanders, backbiters, tailbearers, for all these are of their father the devil, and his lusts they will do. Uh, you, you see this and it, and it becomes a problem and you, you avoid that. This isn't, this isn't a deaconess. This isn't somebody. And, and I love this idea of faithful in all things. I mean, that's a woman of excellence. That's a Proverbs 31 woman or a Proverbs, you Proverbs know, 31 man, if there's such a thing. The idea that what they do, they do decently and in order. And they're faithful. Whatever the issue is, it requires prayer. Is what you're doing really worth doing if you can do it apart from prayer? If I don't see men and women at prayer... I'm, I'm not real prone to elevating them to a, to a status of servant. Interesting concept, elevating them to a status of servant. Prayer is of vital importance. Now, it doesn't have to be corporate prayer, but want when I spend time with them and I hear them pray, I can tell they've been in the presence of the Lord praying. This is something that's not foreign to them. They don't repeat the same thing over. There's, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a comfort in the presence of the Lord. You can just sense it. And you know how they pray. Uh, it, it, there's, there's a depth to it. They've spent time going into all the realms of heaven to pull down the resources of God for the the executing of his of his purposes. And I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you, you see someone who's faithful in all things. Verse 12 says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. And we covered that last week. It doesn't mean that you... you uh, a man or a woman can't have been divorced before. Um, it means that they're, they're faithful to who they're with and there's no wandering. And, um, and, and you, you, you follow that. And in the idea of ruling their own house as well, you may have a child that's wayward. But are they in your home? Have you kicked them out? Have you established governance? Have you laid down good rules? You've ruled your house well and you've said to that child who has a will, you've said to that child, if you do this, you're out. Well, that. That doesn't mean that you're disqualified because your child is wayward. Some would interpret it that way. I don't. I see the idea that you raise a child and the way they go, the bend that they go, and when they're old, they won't depart thereof. And and sometimes there's a season where a child just needs to go out and they're experiential and they're learning and you just gotta let them go. And they just, they hit that brick wall so many times, they go, wait a minute, this thing's not coming down, I'm going home. And they have a little blood on their face, and but it all works. And and this is the idea of what Paul is saying to Timothy. Verse 13 For those who have served well as deacons attain for themselves a good standing. And this is in the public, the general public. You do obtain a good standing if you apply these things and you're faithful in all things and you're tested and you pursue what? We're getting there. And you pursue. And so this is an outline for those who would want to pursue a status in the church to be elevated in the form of a servant. And that comes by character. And how do you obtain excellence? By the pursuit of what is good. How do you obtain excellence? By the pursuit of what is good. And then Paul simply says that they've obtained for themselves a good standing and, in addition, a great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Since they've been tested, they can say to somebody in the congregation, quit whining, God's going to come through. And I'll show you example after example in my own life. For years, I held on to just what I'd read in a book by Chuck Smith with he and his wife, Kay, when they were short money and they danced. he danced around the kitchen with his wife when someone called and said, I'm sending you a check. And it was $20 more than what they needed and everything was all great. And as soon as he finished dancing with his wife, he went into a study and said, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. And the Lord spoke to Chuck's heart and said, Chuck, why weren't you dancing last night? Why are you dancing now? How do you know that man's going to send the money? Lord, he's my best friend. He, he's never broken his word. And God said to Chuck's heart, neither have I. And I didn't see you dancing with Kay last night. And I hear things like that and I'm moved. And this is a man with boldness who can write these things in truth. And it inspires generations for people to say, look, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He says, you'll have a great boldness in the faith in Jesus Christ. Because you've been there, done that. You, ex- you pass the test you succeeded and you can lead others in that same direction to say, listen, I know God is faithful. Hang on. Hang on. The person you avoid is the person who's given up. God's responsible for all my failures. The church is responsible for all my failures. Everybody else is to blame. That person has no faith. They haven't been tested. They've, they've failed in this, this test. They've given up. They don't believe God is good. They, they, they read the scriptures. They go through these things. There's still some sort of a pursuit of, this, of, of the church because it's a pleasant place to be. But this depth to, to move others and to serve others is absent because there's, there's no foundation having been tested. And they're still in that, that stage of getting what you call a BSD degree, a backside of the desert. And that's where God takes you out in the desert and removes all of you so he can pour in all of him. Amen? Amen. And then Paul says in verse 14, these things I write to you, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. And Paul's just saying, I want to come and listen, Timothy, you're holding down the fort. I'm going to come. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to blow sunshine your way. I'm going to come and help educate the folks in relation to this. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know. And he says how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God. This is how you operate in a civil society. This is, this is civility. This is decorum. This is how you deal with a family. This is how you deal with one another. This is how you interact with one another. And the people that lead the home are the ones that have this character, the ones that pursue good and achieve excellence. These are the ones that conduct themselves in the house of God. This is a family. This is a home. And this is what we do. And he says this house of God is the church of the living God. We don't cart him out and put him on a pedestal like Dagon. He is alive. And, and with the exception of the cross, there's not a lot of other things that we see as far as accoutrements of any idolatry. Not even saying the cross is idolatry because Christ isn't on and it. It's just an empty cross. And, and that's a reflection of, of the sacrifice of Christ. But beyond that, we, we worship the Lord and he's a living God. And when, when Paul points this out, he says that this is the church of the living God, he then says it's the pillar and the ground of truth. And I want to read to you some, some thoughts in relation to that, not my own, but others. One writes, the church is God's house because he is the architect, he is the builder, he lives there, he provides for it, he is honored there, and he rules there. This author says the pillar and the ground of truth, in relation to it, he says the pillar and the ground, the foundation of the church, is truth. Tragically, many churches today sell truth short and are therefore weak pillars and shaky ground. You come and you hear the whole counsel of God's word. We go through passages of Scripture that are really tough; they're actually hard to preach. I don't enjoy them. If it was up to me, I'd love to skip them. But the reality is, what Paul is saying is, you teach the whole counsel of God's word. And if you're you're doing your pet sermons on topical messages, a tip, a, a, a periodic topical message isn't necessarily a bad thing. And what I'm thankful for is the the system of Calvary Chapel is Sunday mornings, we do in a sense a topical covering of a book, and then Sunday nights is when you go through a verse-by-verse teaching of that book. Well, I turn Sunday nights over to the younger guys to teach, and they would do their own thing, but unbeknownst to me, I'm so thankful for it, they're going through an in-depth study of the book of Romans, verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book. And on Wednesday nights, we're going through the entirety of 1 Timothy, and so this is that picture that it is the foundation. It is the, it's, it's the pillar of truth. This is what God's called us to. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. You'll be able to distinguish between a falsehood and, uh, and, and truth. You'll be able to, to have discernment. And, and faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And now you start to see how all of it ties together. And that's why it's of great importance. Another author uh, writes, pillars were of ancient use to fasten upon them any public edicts which princes or courts would have published and exposed to the view of all. Hence the church is called the pillar and basis or seal of truth because it is the truths of God uh, are published and supported and defended. Published, supported, and defended. Think about that. We covered the First Amendment last week. How do we contend in the marketplace for truth? Well, we have to be bold from the pulpit to educate our people so they would be citizens that would apply that. How do you apply it? You apply it in every vestige of of community. It applies to the civic arena as much as it does to the entertainment world and as much as it does to athletics and schools. But it only does it if the people who receive it go out and bring it. How will they know unless someone tells them? It's applied truth. Applying that truth in daily life and everywhere where God has planted you. I'm, I'm the captain of an aircraft carrier. You're all fighter pilots. You come in. I, I, I put ammunition in your, in your weapon bay. I put fuel in your tank, and I send you out, and you do the battle. Now, I do it too. I'm part of that. I have my own plane. I go into City Hall and fly in there, and I do all that. Run out of fuel quick, come back. I have to fill my own plane, basically. Thanks. I appreciate it. But this idea of, of the truth uh, and being a pillar of the truth uh, or the seal of truth, because the truths of God are published, supported, and defended. It comes from 2 Timothy 2.15 that Paul wrote to Timothy later. It was the last epistle he ever wrote. He said, be diligent, to prese- uh, be diligent to present yourselves approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We are bearers of the truth. We're presenters of the truth. We're harbingers of the truth. And we're to do these things. And um, And this is what we hold to. Look at verse 16. It says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, Without controversy, I suppose he means that there ought to be no controversy about these facts. Though controversies have arisen concerning them and always will, since the most self-evident truth will always find self-evident fools to contradict it. And and what Paul's saying is listen this is without controversy now if you want to cause controversy and 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 contend with it you're you're fighting against something that you're going to lose and and you can make laws contrary to natural law you can you can make laws contrary to revealed truth you can make laws contrary to scriptural truth you can do that but you're going to reap what you sow and you're going to be a mess and and I love this idea what what Jefferson said and this is where someone said Uh, this is a Jeffersonian way of saying any idiot can understand this. And Jefferson wrote these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, pursuit of what? Virtue, pursuit of good. In the pursuit of good, what do you obtain? Oh, four of you got it. In the pursuit of good, what do you obtain? That to secure these rights, these inalienable rights, that to secure these rights, the purpose of the law, government, legislature, is instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The purpose of the government is to allow men and women life and liberty, 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 doing what's right, pursuit of virtue, goodness, to obtain... Oh my gosh. We're going to get this, right? You have life. Liberty is doing what's right, doing good. Virtue is goodness. And when you pursue goodness, you obtain... And then the scripture says, uh, in continuing in verse sixteen, um, this mystery of godliness: God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. I like this idea of seen by angels. The ministry of Jesus, both on earth and through the church, is of great interest to angelic beings. There are many instances Jesus was seen by angels. Mark one thirteen, Luke twenty two forty one through forty three, especially at the resurrection. Matthew twenty eight two through seven. The apostle mentions this to show the greatness of our religion since the noblest intellects are interested in it. Did you ever hear angels hovering around the assemblies of philosophical societies? That was Spurgeon who wrote that. Did you ever hear of angels hovering above philosophical societies? They had beheld the attributes of justice. They had seen the uh, the attribute of power. They had marked the attribute of wisdom and seen the prerogative of sovereignty. And then this idea that Jesus was received up into glory, preached among the Gentiles. These truths, this goodness was preached among the Gentiles. It was believed on in the world and transformed the world. The greatest governments in the world have come. And as as Winston Churchill said, democracy is an awful form of government, but it's the best we have. Something along those lines. And, and this idea of where it came from and these ideas of inalienable rights and this idea of a pursuit of good for the accomplishment of excellence. And this is where we have our law and our Western law received up into glory. Um, Calvin writes, Jesus ascended into heaven in a resurrected body, yet it was a body that still retained the marks of his great work of love for us. It still had the nail prints in his hands and feet, the wound in his side and all marks of his suffering on our behalf. Paul's description of Jesus after the passage speaking of Christian character reminds us of the key to our own character transformation. Beholding Jesus. It is just as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled faces behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Jesus, in a sense, is, is the perfect fulfillment of these descriptions of Christian character. Jesus is the fulfillment of these descriptions of Christian character. We trust that Jesus will transform our life according to the same character of excellence. There it is again. Jesus will transform our life according to the same character of excellence as we put our focus on him. And it's fascinating to me that as Paul wrote this outline of deacons, uh, in Acts chapter 6... I want to read to you, starting with verse 1. It says, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint of, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So the, the, the Hebrew Jews and the Greek Jews were at war with each other. These spoke Hebrew, these spoke Greek. These were more in the pagan world, but they were followers of, of Jehovah and, and they were all Jews, but these were of Hellenistic background. These were of, of Hebrew background. And he says a contention arose or a complaint arose against them because the widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hellenists, these Greek widows, were being dissed. And the Hebrew widows were being cared for in, in, in greater concern than the Hellenist widows. There was prejudice in the body of Christ. Imagine that. Prejudice in the body of Christ. It doesn't exist, Right? Martin Luther King Jr. said, the most segregated place in America is a church on a Sunday morning. Now I believe that's changed in, in a number of ways, but I, I think too that we segregate in a number of different ways. Uh, and the scripture says in verse 2 that the twelve summoned, these twelve apostles summoned the multitude of the disciples and said it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. So the neglect of one thing will not suffice to cover the neglect of another. We, we can't do this. We can't neglect the, the, uh, the, the, the teaching of the word of God to serve these tables. Both are of great importance. And, and I'm grateful because this took a lot of time to put on today. And somebody had to prepare and, and, and John and the team had to do the music and somebody got the place vacuum, the lights on, air conditioning running. They did the sound checks. People checked the bathroom, swept the floor, mopped, got everything ready for your arrival. I didn't have time to do that. And this is that idea that, that the apostles are saying, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. I could have done all those things. And early on when the church was starting, I, I did do much of that. And, it w- and I was younger and capable of doing it. But now it's, it's getting harder. And the scripture says, therefore, brethren, oh, let me just add this one part. When David got really old and he wanted to go out to war, his men said, stay back. Your brain is far more valuable than you fighting with us. And I'm kind of at that stage now. Verse 3, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. So this is that same picture we see in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so this is an application of 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the apostle Paul laid out. Now, with all that being said, and this idea of, of, of what, what Paul was writing in First um, Timothy chapter 3, I want to bring back that passage. Here it is. No, that's not it. What do I do with it? Oh, here. Yeah. So the picture of being tested, the idea is going through trial, right? We went that, and I'm, I'm going to finish tonight with a, a little thought. And to drive this home as to what we're pursuing. We're pursuing good to obtain what? And to pursue good, we're going to be tested. Yeah, you're going to be tested. The world doesn't like good. It's it's. They loved evil. They love the darkness more than the light. Loved agape. And they're in contention. And truth is never tolerant of a lie, and a lie is never tolerant of the, of the truth. Tolerance is is not accepting. Tolerance is being respectful, but not accepting a lie. It means bold to stand in the face of it. People think peace is the absence of conflict. It's not. Peace is the presence of the Lord in the midst of the conflict. There will be conflict when you stand in opposition to a lie and you stand upon the truth. You will be tested. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, you're going to be tested. And you stand for these things in the midst of a world that is in opposition. And listen, if five million people say that when you run off a cliff, you're going to fly, and you're one of four people to say, no, you're going to die. And they go, no, no, you just chant a mantra. I won't die, I'll fly, I won't die, I'll fly. Just join with us, it's a mantra. If we can get the whole world to get in tune with this one note in singing, you won't die, you'll fly, we'll all be able to lift and you're listening to them going, why are all these 5 million people idiots? And they all run off the cliff together. And they, they, they just, they're like lemmings. And they're obliterated. And you're standing on the cliff going, why didn't you listen? Just because the majority embraces it doesn't mean it's true. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood in opposition to Hitler. He was dead wrong. Hitler was. And the last act of Hitler before he killed himself was to hang Bonhoeffer. And that's the idea. He stood in opposition to all the other, you know, church leaders and everyone else who wanted their pension and wanted the easy way out. And they were being tested and they didn't stand for truth. And Hitler even said, I'll take care of your pensions, I'll give you money for your churches, we'll we'll maintain the buildings. And Bonhoeffer said, But what about the soul of Germany? And Hitler said, Leave the soul of Germany to me. And Bonhoeffer walked out and he was marked and he was killed. And when Martin Luther King Jr. was in a, in, a, in a prison in Birmingham, Alabama, and all the pastors said, you're on the wrong side of history, you're in prison, Martin Luther King Jr. said, no, you're on the wrong side of history because you're not in prison with me. This is the idea. You will be tested in the pursuit of good to obtain excellence. You will be tested. And in this, this pursuit of good to obtain excellence, the world is benefited by your stand. You're a light shining in a dark place, and light overcomes darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome light. Darkness has no power. All darkness exists is by the absence of light. And if you shine, you will always be the center of attention. You may not want it, and you will be tested. Everybody will be blowing in your direction, but you remain lit. And the idea of being faithful in all things, in all things, for those who have served well as deacons, attain for themselves a good standing. This is when the world starts to take notice of you. This is where we're going to deviate a little bit tonight in our last remaining 15 minutes. Listen to this definition of law. Law. Because we know that the law is good, right? Scripture says that, yes? And the law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. Does the law save? Hello? No, it doesn't save. So what is the purpose of the law? Especially in civil society. It's a, it's a segment of how to operate. It's a, it's a direction. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And he says, on these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. And you go, okay, great. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and strength. And I love my neighbors myself. I'm good to go. And, and love God and do as you please. And, and I have freedom. I have freedom. And, 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 and uh, that's grace, man. And, and all things are permissible, not all things are profitable, but hey man, this is profitable. And so we spend our time justifying our behavior, knowing that it's contradictory to what God wants for us. Be d- not drunk of wine, but of the Holy Spirit. Well, we go a little bit beyond that, and we find ourselves drunk, we go, well, God forgave me, and you know, there's grace. You know, there is grace. You have a safe soul and a wasted life, and you're not a light shining in the darkness, and there's no pursuit of good, and there's no obtainment of excellence. And you don't have good standing. And your kids struggle with you, because you're, you're, you're double-minded, You're different when you're drunk than you are when you're sober. You're still saved. You got your get out of hell free card, but you have no reputation, no pursuit of good and no obtainment of excellence. And you're not of good reputation and you don't change the culture in which you live. And what is the purpose of the law? One author writes, the wise restraints law is the wise restraints that make men free. The wise restraints that make men free. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Restraints that make you free. How can restraints of human choice lead to freedom? How can restraints of human choice lead to freedom? Now, if we were of uh, the political mindset of, of those that believe we need to remove all restraints, that would be anarchy. We can go a little bit further with it. Uh, what's the realm that they they purport themselves to be conservative, but they're? Um, I'm sorry, not progressive. huh? Libertarian, a, a libertarian approach. You know, I. I it's a woman's choice. Let, just everyone gets to choose what they want to choose based on what they think is right. Is that what God intends? Is that what law is? How can restraints of human choice lead to freedom? And that's a question to ponder. In the modern world, freedom is defined as the absence of restraint. <clears throat> that's how we view it nowadays. My body, my choice. I should be free to, cho- to choose to marry any, whoever I love. Yes? I'm talking about the modern view. Okay, are we all right with that? Don't be all contending with me now. Hang on. In the modern world, freedom is defined as the absence of restraint. Hey, live and let live, man. Right? Another way to look at it is I should have the freedom to choose to marry who I love. I should have the freedom to do with my body as I please. To be truly free in the modern mindset is to remove restraints imposed by previous generations. When you remove a barrier, an ancient marker, you might want to ask why they put it there to begin with. But it's in the way of what I want. I'm tearing it down. Any donkey can knock down a barn door. But only a carpenter can build one. You build a wall one brick at a time. Keep that in mind. We'll come to an illustration of it. Restraints bind the will. Don't, don't say no to your little Johnny. He needs to just express himself. Restraints bind the will. To be totally free, I must be free to do my will. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but thy will be done. Hold that. What is the ancient view of freedom? What did Plato and Aristotle think of? What was the ancient view of freedom from the Hebrew mindset and the Christian mindset in these early writings as we examine what Paul laid out of this idea of being tested and faithful in all things and obtaining a good standing in the world? The ancients believed that freedom and law fit together like a hand and glove. Now, it's a paradox. The conflict that exists between freedom and the law. Wait a minute. How can you have freedom and still have a law? Man, that doesn't make sense. How can you have freedom and have the law? Is the law really a restraint? Isn't the maximization of choice the essence of true freedom? I mean, I've got to have as many choices as possible. That's freedom. I can smoke where I want to smoke, drink where I want to drink, drive what I want to drive, drive anytime I want to drive. doesn't drive at any age I want to drive. Yeah, I, 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 I can do whatever I want. Shoot it, smoke it, drink it. And, and someone says, well, as long as you don't hurt anyone else. No, oh, that's, oh, that's, that's a constraint, man. Isn't the maximization of choice the essence of true freedom? Doesn't the law threaten my freedom to choose? Does it? Does the law threaten your freedom to choose? Pay attention. The ancients didn't reduce law to restriction. They were smarter than that. Nor did they reduce freedom to the abundance of choice. Those are just stupid ways of viewing something that is complex and has greater meaning. Follow me. Freedom to the ancients was a notion of a freedom to obtain excellence. Watch. Not an independence of the human will. I want to do what I want to do. See, today we're led to believe that for a choice to be free, the will must detach itself from the intellect so that the will can stand indifferent to the claims of truth. Uh, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. And, and it's subjective. And whatever's true for me may not be true for you. And man, there's all kinds of truths. Really? What's two plus two? Well, it's four, but I really feel like it's three. Well, you get an F. Well, but I've, I've, got, I've got a group of folks that are, are picketing with me, and we're going to shout you down until you give me an A. Well, I'll give you an A because I don't want to be beat up. What happens? The destruction of the pursuit of excellence. Now nobody knows how to do math, and our buildings are all falling down. Today we're led to believe that to be free, the will must be moved only by itself. Right? Right? The will is the sole arbiter between the intellect and our passions. It sounds kind of cool. Today we're led to believe that true freedom is indifference. Ah, maybe, maybe not. You know, just like a twig on the banks of a mighty river, just, just go with the flow. And that's an indifference to nature's order? Indifference to natural and revealed truth? I mean, I'm indifferent to the law of gravity. Well, that's a law. Yeah, well, I'm indifferent to laws. I'm not bound by them. My will overcomes the law of gravity. I am going to scream into the darkness of the abyss of Something that has happened by chance, not by design. And I'm going to just shout in the darkness and be something in a world that's nothing. And I'm not sure what that means, but I am standing on that. And, and, and who created this substance of which you live? Well, it, 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 it started with a big bang. Who, who started the bang? Aliens. Aliens did. You're in a universe of order. No, it's chaos. Really? Held in a balance on nothing in space? Sunrises, sunsets, you can bank seasons on it. You can plant fields. <laughs> Babies are born with integrity. look at the dynamics of the smallest cell in human creation, and you're saying that it's by chance? I've shared the illustration before. If you come along a watch on the ground and, and someone says, how'd that get there? And you go, oh, you won't believe it. Nature created this over billions of years. Really, how? Oh, the sand during a volcanic eruption melted such that it created glass and the wind over eons blew over it and buffed it and created this circular bevel of complete clarity and animals came and rolled on it that it evolved from frogs that had gotten a wart and turned into a mammal, but it rolled on it until it buffed it. What about the intricacy of all the design inside the watch? Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. And the leather strips, oh my goodness. Lightning hit an animal at the right time and the strips came down. And they were weathered just perfectly so that you got this high gloss. And a bird came along and poked exactly even dots. Really? Yes. Yes. Are you sure that someone didn't make that? Oh, there's no creator. But there's design. No, that just happened. You're an idiot. <laughs> True freedom is indifference, indifference to nature's order, indifference to natural or revealed truth, indifference to sense and passion. Passions aren't bad, engage them, your senses. Indulge them. If it feels good, do it. And do it a lot. And do it with anyone. But to the ancients, they saw freedom as the fruit of excellence. Freedom to them was not choice, but the excellence that comes from choosing good. Watch, a person becomes freer as he or she pursues good choices because they obtain a greater excellence. Not indifference to good, but a pursuit of it. How do you get a 300 batting average in Major League Baseball? Yeah. How do you get a 400 batting average which hasn't been obtained in quite a while? How do you do that? Steroids. (laughs) Steroids. <laughs> That's why it hasn't been done in a while. It's a pursuit of excellence. You practice, you practice, you practice, you practice. How, how do you get 5,000 yards passing in the NFL? Passing? Pa- how do you create a souffle as a chef? That's a tough one. You gotta break a lot of eggs. How do you obtain a triple sow cow in ice skating? Oh, I can do that right now. <laughs> triple sound broken knee You see in this pursuit of good for the attaining of excellence we're free from ignorance and weakness Let me explain to you you're not a chooser because you reduce your choices you're an achiever because you reduce your choices to obtain excellence You're not aloof to good, but you're in pursuit of it. Peyton Manning is freer than I am to enjoy football because he's pursued excellence in the sport. If I got on a field on a Sunday morning and played against the teams he's played against, I would come out a crumbled mess with zero passing yards. If this is applied to moral life, we're almost finished, four minutes, if this is applied to moral life, at the beginning of our moral maturity, we lack excellence but at the end of our life, we enjoy moral excellence. What that means is you come to Christ and you start to realize this trash that you brought to the Lord. You go, wait a minute, I've got to improve this. I've got to pursue good. And as you pursue good, you obtain excellence. By pursuing good, the will is strengthened by minor victories, you're tested. And then you become mature and people can assign you in a position of good reputation in your community. Peyton Manning must spend more time on the field than in the mall or in front of a Nintendo. Oh no, I'm a super good football player. You got to see what I do on this thing. <laughs> to grow in justice, to mature in justice means cheating on your taxes is no longer an option, it's no longer a choice. So you have less choices in your pursuit of good to obtain excellence. To lose options does not make me less free, but it gives me greater excellence. A brick in the pile, here we go, a brick in the pile remains free from the constraints of the wall, but a brick on the pile keeps its options open but never achieves its full purpose. It's just a brick on the pile. Law is a restraint if there's an indifference to excellence. Freedom is found in bearing responsibility. So the definition of law to the ancients was this. Law is the wise and authoritative counsel that directs men and women to the free and excellent share of common good. You see, folks, the Lord says this. Romans 14, Paul writes, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do good and obtain excellence. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. 1 Timothy 6, Paul will write at the end of this passage in verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and patience, and gentleness. 2 Timothy 2.22, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, pursue good, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You pursue good, you'll obtain excellence. Hebrews twelve fourteen. pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How are they gonna see Christ unless your life exemplifies it? And the only way that's gonna happen is you pursue good and obtain excellence. Then you have a good reputation and you're tested because good will be tested. Finally, last three verses, yet indeed, Paul says in Philippians 3, yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Who is Christ? He's the Prince of Peace. He's the lawgiver. He's the fulfillment of the law. His life fulfilled the law. Second Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And then finally, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly. You don't cheat on your taxes. That's no longer a choice to you. So you have less choices, but you have more freedom. What kind of freedom? Freedom to pursue excellence. But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We have the law all backwards. It's not the absence of restraints. It's, it's pursuing good for the attainment of excellence. I love our city's motto. Our city manager's here. Scott Mitnick, what is the city motto? Got you on the spot. Their pursuit of excellence premieres the pursuit of excellence and it's established in their executive management team. And and that's how a civil servant governs in our city. That's what God requires of deacons and deaconesses in the church. Apply these, understand the law and that's God's blessing to you tonight.